Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Alan Parker, president of the Justice Foundation. The Justice Foundation, founded in 1993, seeks to protect the fundamental freedoms and rights essential to the preservation of American society by providing free legal services to promote those rights. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Day, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. To learn more about CLT's mission and to find out about upcoming test dates, head to www.cltexam.com slash get started. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. I am Tracy Gardner, the Chief Operating Officer, standing in today for Jeremy Tate. Today, we are excited to have Alan Parker on our podcast. Alan is the president of the Justice Foundation and is a former professor of law at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, where he taught education law and civic procedure. He was a visiting professor at the University of Texas and studied international human rights at the International Human Rights Institute in Strasbourg, France. His expertise centers on limited government, parental rights, and women's health, and has been featured in numerous media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the Jim Lehrer News Hour, Houston Chronicle, Dallas Morning News, Washington Times, Los Angeles Times, and more. Welcome, Alan. We are excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be joining you in this conversation. Wonderful. Well, we'd love to begin the Anchored podcast by learning about your own educational formation. What was school like for you as a young boy? What type of school did you attend? And did you love learning as a young boy? (laughs) Well, I loved reading. I have to say that. I think if you are a good reader and you like to read, you're going to do well at learning throughout your whole life. And it's one of the reasons learning to read is so critical in our public schools or even homeschools or wherever the education is occurring. I, I did attend a Catholic elementary school and a Catholic junior high up until I was in the ninth grade. I lived in... I I grew up in Houston, Texas until I was about uh, fifth grade. And then I went to uh, Catholic schools in a small town in Oklahoma. There were only eight people in my eighth grade class, two girls and six guys. And so we all had to play on the basketball team and we didn't have much talent. So I remember that. But I do remember getting a good education. was taught to love God and love people. Uh, I believed in uh, truth, and we were fairly regular churchgoers. And then I actually went to public high school, and my wrestling coach encouraged me to read. Now, he, wasn't, he was the wrestling coach, 
I was a little bit, I didn't get my height until later in life. So I was the wrestling manager, but he encouraged me to read a lot. And I read uh, 1984 and George Orwell's Animal Farm book. Uh, Those influenced me a lot that we need to have liberty in our lives rather than authoritarian governments. And uh, so I was kind of a strong believer in liberty. And I also read a lot about the Crusades growing up. And the Crusades are kind of passe today, but I I don't have any anti-Muslim thought, but I just grew up wanting to be a knight and a crusader. And I think it's one reason that I'm willing to engage in public crusades sometimes for things that I think are right. Oh, that's a really amazing story. I, I love the books that you mentioned. My my own children have read those books as part of their education, and it has certainly spurred interesting conversation around the dinner table, even though they were written a long time ago. Those those same ideas that are presented in 1984 and others are um, very um today um, in the in the situations that we're dealing with as as parents and um, in, in your case as also as a grandparent as well. So that's really interesting. Um, I love to hear about your love of reading. Is that part of the reason that you were potentially interested in going to law school? Well, in a way it is. This is going to sound very strange. I I went into the art, I went to the University of Oklahoma undergraduate and then uh, I got a a draft number of 16, uh, one of the last years they drafted people. They drafted up to 100 that year. So I went into the military, or I I signed up for ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, because I did want to finish my college degree. I went into the Army for two years, and then I went to the University of Texas Law School. So I always root for the winner of the OUUT football game. So I, I, though my heart's really with Oklahoma, I have to say. But I, I, after I got out of the Army, I said, what am I going to do now? And I took the LSAT, the law school admissions test, and I enjoyed the test. I enjoyed the logic, the uh just the the deduction from a set of principles, what applies here. And I said, okay, I like the law school exam. I will go to law school. And uh, if I like it, I'll stay. If I don't, I'll do something else. I, I didn't really, it's not a very noble reason to go to law school, but I did enjoy the test and I enjoyed law school once I got there. So I decided to stay. Oh, that's really amazing. I, I haven't met very many other people that loves tests. Um, I'm I'm one of those nerdy people that love taking tests as a kid. I grew up in New York State and took the New York State Regents exams and loved them and wanted to embark upon a career that would allow me to, to make tests. And one of the things that you mentioned that you love about the law school admission tests is the, the measurement of logic and reasoning. And that's one thing that I absolutely love about the CLT is our approach to quantitative reasoning is very logic-based. We also, you know, we want to know that students know how to do algebra and geometry concepts, but we also want to make sure that they know how to logically think and be able to analyze from an argument and deduce and and create ideas from there. 
Um, so that's really interesting that you love those um, those ty- those types of problems. My son, who's a seventh grader, just took CLT eight for the first time a few weeks ago, and he loved those problems the best. He said those were the most fun because they were like a game, like a puzzle, and he really enjoyed um, those, those kinds of items. So I, I'm I'm glad to meet someone that likes tests as much as I do. I'd love to move on and talk about your work at the Justice Foundation. Um, I, I read up on the Justice Foundation after I met you. Very intriguing to me. And I saw that um, one of the missions is to support the fundamental and natural right of parents to direct the education and upbringing of their own children and believe that parents are the best practitioners of children and have the natural right and duty to care for their children. Uh, The Justice Foundation also believes that the regeneration of American education through parental choice and child-centered funding, meaning funding to students rather than systems or districts, is a great way to do this. Um, Tell us more about these ideas and the initiative that the Justice Foundation is embarking upon to support parental rights in education. Well, thank you very much. Um, when I got out of law school, and by the way, the LSAT was a good predictive test for how well I did in law school. I graduated at the top of my class and uh, was on the law review. But I went to a, a law firm in Corpus Christi, Texas, and they represented about all the school districts in the area, about a dozen school districts, I think, eight to 10, something like that. And um, that was common at the time. And there was a new law called the Education of All Handicapped Children Act, and it required due process hearings for special needs students. And the senior lawyer handed it to me and said, here, read this. You'll be as much of an expert as anybody in the country on this new law. And that's kind of how I got into school law. I did represent school districts for the first seven years, uh, the whole time I was in the private practice of law before I became a professor. And it was very enjoyable to represent school districts. I do admire school board members quite a bit because they volunteer volunteer their time to be volunteer uh, policymakers in the public schools. But I did get very familiar with education law. And I... I saw some of the problems in public education. I think anybody who is intellectually honest would say that we have a lot of problems with public education in America. And they're structural problems, I came to conclude, because it's not whether the people are good-hearted or bad-hearted. There's not, you know, there's some good people in the system, but the system is very structurally flawed. It is designed to respond to government. It is a government-controlled system of providing a very important service to all of us that is important to parents, the children, and in a sense, all of us who want to have a just society and a a good life. Uh, So my work in the system showed me the inside And then I became a professor of law at uh, St. Mary's University. They needed a civil procedure, which is lawsuits, litigation. I'd done that. And then I got educational law in the curriculum also, since they didn't have anybody teach it. And with the new laws that were being passed in education, there was a need for more school lawyers. Before, it had just been a corporate lawyer, and they were kind of a business. And there were some special laws for schools, but 
It was a government-controlled business. That's all a school is. It's, it's supplying services that are needed to people. And we've decided as a society, we want to send a certain amount of money on the education of children. And so <clears throat> when I was a professor, the issue of school choice started being uh, prominent. And uh, there was even liberal groups like the Brookings Institution and political scientists were saying there were structural problems in education. And my undergraduate degree was in free markets economics, actually. And the greatest economics professor of all time was Adam Smith and said, you know, we need to have liberty. We need to have freedom. <clears throat> so it was interesting that the political scientists in academia said, there are structural problems. The stakeholders are all messed up. It's a political control model and it's not working well, particularly for minority children. And I saw that also. But the education academicians with the schools of education uniformly said, everything's great. We're doing a great job. We just need more money. And, and that's been the mantra of the education establishment. For I've now been a lawyer for forty years plus, so I've I've been in it forty years, and more and 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 they get people wrapped up. Everybody wants to help the kids. Let's put more money into education. We're not spending enough, and and nothing really changes. That's been my we we are overspending because you can do it much more cheaply. I mean, it, it's you know you don't need a hundred and sixty million dollar state football stadiums, which is. What's no wait? I mean, I may have that wrong. Maybe only a sixty million dollar stadium in Texas, but that's way more than we ought to be spending on a football stadium. Now, again, I'm, it's Texas. People want that, and they're willing to pay for it. But we're neglecting academics uh, to a great degree, and children are being children are afraid to go to public schools in many cases. So, in 1991, I wrote my first article. Would school choice be permissible in Texas under the Texas Constitution, which is similar to most states, uh, if the legislature chose to have a school choice system? And by school choice, I'm going to make it very simple. I believe in child-centered funding. Instead of funding school districts run by the government, we should fund every child's education equally and then let the parents choose. Uh, which school is best for their child. This will create a different kind of system where the suppliers of the services, schools, have to meet the needs of the consumers. And that's really all it is. We just need to change the incentive system where whoever's running the school has to meet the needs, or at least the perceived needs, of the person who controls the money. And if they do a good job, the people will voluntarily put their children there. Just like uh, people, parents have to feed their children, but we don't require a government food store or a government cafeteria. Uh, in one sense, food is more important than education. You'll die quicker if you don't have a food, but we let parents, even poor parents, we help them enter the market. We don't create a government food store. We create food stamps or SNAP as it's called today. And we give everybody the ability to make choices. So that's what I came to the conclusion we needed to do in education after experiment and then after looking at it legally. To my surprise, I wrote an article 
that said not only would school choice be constitutional in Texas, under the 1876 Constitution, which is when we decided as a group that we're going to create schools and fund them, uh, under the 1876 Texas Constitution, school choice would not only be a right a, a permissible, I felt there was a constitutional right to it under the Texas. Because let me quote the Texas Constitution. People ask, why do we have education? Here's the official reason of the state of Texas. A general diffusion of knowledge being essential for the preservation of liberty, it shall be the duty of the legislature to establish a suitable and efficient system of public free schools. Mm-hmm. That's why. Why do we do it? Not so people can get a job, but for the preservation of liberty. Now, our forefathers also found if you can't support yourself, if you're on the government income, you're dependent on the government and you'll never be free. And, you know, that that but you have part of being able to live and work, build your own business, own property, support yourself and your family. That was part of liberty for them, not just everybody got to get a job. We're a little bit more statist than our forefathers were. And, and, and there's, so anyway, the other thing it says is it's a suitable and efficient system. Now, efficient and efficiency is well known to economists. It's well known to political scientists and most people who would ever think a government monopoly is the most efficient system to provide goods and services. Right. Nowhere in the world has a government monopoly shined out as the innovator and the creator of new things. No, governments create shortages and then ration it. A good example of that in Texas is charter schools, which have hundreds of thousands of children on the waiting list. But the legislature says, no, we won't let you grow. We won't let there be more such similar schools that people want to go into. We put a fixed cap on it. So as a result, less good schools. And and that's what governments do. They tend to not be innovators. They tend to be scarcity rationers. And and that's what they've created, a scarcity of good schools. So anyway. Yes, thank you. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm feeling exactly what you're saying. I'm I'm a mother of six. And uh, we started in the public schools with my oldest two daughters who are now in 11th grade and 9th grade. And they went to public schools through uh, second grade and kindergarten. Uh, But during that year, this was back in uh, 2012 or 2013, I made the decision that this isn't the right fit for our family. And we decided to homeschool. And uh, when Great Hearts came to San Antonio in 2015, we got on the waiting list and then we got on the waiting list again in 2016 and we got on the waiting list again in 2017. And by the grace of God, my oldest got in. And once she got in through the sibling priority, it got my other children in and my my youngest, who's now five, he'll be starting kindergarten in the fall. But the kindergarten waiting list that these charter schools are in the thousands and thousands and thousands. And it just doesn't make any sense why the state legislature, whoever it is that's voting on whether or not we should allow more charter schools is shutting them down when the people have spoken. They have they have spoken 
by signing up, by going through all of the the process to get their kids on these extensive waiting lists at the the charter schools that we have available to us in Texas. And there's just not enough. And it's, it's just a real shame given, given that there's families that want something better for their, for their children and they, they can't get access to it because there's just not enough seats. That's right. And when you go to college and you get a Pell grant or a scholarship, you get to take it anywhere you want, don't you? You don't yes. you don't have to go to a geographically assigned college, but in K through 12, because we did it in the past and we built this established system, it is very good at protecting itself. Now, I will say in 1993, we founded the Justice Foundation. We litigated for educational choice as a right where the money follows the child to the school of the parent's choice. That's all I'm talking about. We fund child-centered funding. And the Texas Supreme Court did give us a decision in that case, a kind of a partial victory because I wanted it for everybody. But they said, well, the Texas legislature currently chooses to provide education through a district and state agency, but there's nothing in the Texas Constitution that requires them to do so. As long as there's a general diffusion of knowledge, the legislature can choose any method it wants. So we sued in 93. We got the decision in 94. The next session of the legislature was 95. We pushed for full school choice, including public and private schools. But we did get a new kind of school in Texas. You've discussed it, the charter school. It's run by nonprofits. It has non-government employees, has no taxing authority. People have to voluntarily attend it. But their money follows their children. And that's how the school stays open. So I pushed for that. And we, we litigate with a lot of people. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, there were, I was one of many, many people, but we just couldn't get private schools included then. But uh, we did get charter schools and we gave them less money. And they're always asking for more money. But one reason we gave them less money was to prove they can be more efficient and do as much or more with less money than public schools. So Intellectually, I oppose giving them equal money. I think they're constantly say, showing, the, and that's one reason the public schools hate them. I hate to create that enmity between them, but they do more with less than traditional public schools. Now, I want to say this. I am an advocate for all good schools, public or private, charter, homeschooling, virtual schooling, and I, and in my own life, because I was a lawyer, perhaps I could afford it. I've exercised school choice. And that you, if you're well-to-do in Texas, you can choose one of the better school districts in a good neighborhood. And partly why are they better? Because they have good parents who pay attention as watchdogs on the school. Uh, but I've had my child in a Jewish preschool. Uh, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I would choose a Catholic school if that was a good school in my community. I had my child in a private Christian school, and one of them kind of got in trouble because the rebels tend to find themselves and their little group wherever they are, and we put her in a public school, and they could put stricter controls on her, which she needed at the time. I'm a parent. Uh, I believe children need control or discipline to achieve greatness in life. Uh, and anyway, so I've been a a user of all kinds of choice, and I support all choice. But I, I will have to say, and 
we are actually a school choice advocate for parents and teachers. I support the concept of professional charter schools, where if you've been a teacher in public schools for five years, we trust our kids to you already. You would auto, and assuming you have good evaluations, you automatically qualify to start a charter school. And if parents want to voluntarily attend it, their funding should follow them to that school. So I, and I believe teachers would get higher pay under a liberty system where the good schools would grow. And what makes a good school good, one of the greatest factors is a teacher. But teachers are underpaid in the current system because it's a political control model and instead of a free market model, a, a, a liberty model. So I will say that's one of the reasons. So we got the opening, but we have been unable to achieve full child-centered funding in Texas because of the political clout of the multi-billion dollar industry that is public education. It's why this year I've gone on the board of a new grassroots organization called Liberty for the Kids. And yes. Liberty, for, Liberty for the Kids supports one thing, <laughs> that the money should follow the child, every child to the school of the parent or guardian's choice. And that is that is such a great transition to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is bringing me to where we met. So we met at an education summit presented by the Texas Public Policy Foundation and the American Federation for Children in March 2022 that was titled Pastors for Parent Empowerment Summit. It was held at Faith Outreach in San Antonio. And I'll just say as a sidebar note, my father-in-law uh, was the founder of Faith Outreach. So it was really incredible to be in, in the church that he started um, back in 1983 and on his pastoral staff was uh, Charles Flowers. And um, my, my father-in-law passed away last year, but Charles over uh, ran his, his, um, his dedication um, to celebrate his life. And it was really neat to be back in his church uh, celebrating pastors for parental empowerment. And as part of that summit, this is where you you talked about this new initiative that you're about to talk about now. So how can parents and other community stakeholders support parental choice in education? And what should we be doing? How should we be, how should we be voting? Uh, what should we be signing? How can we band together as a community to support better choice for, for students in education? All right. Well, the Justice Foundation is a nonpartisan organization. And school choice should be a nonpartisan issue. And in fact, it is supported by minority parents and voters who tend to be more democratic. It is supported by Republican voters. Uh, in the Republican Party in Texas this year, in the primary, there was a question on the ballot. Uh, and 88% of almost 2 million Republican voters, that would be about 1.6 million people, said, should the money follow the child to the school of the parent's choice, public or private, yes or no? The answer was yes. Now, there was not such a motion on the Democratic ballot because the Democratic teachers unions oppose it. So for Democratic politicians in Texas, particularly minority politicians, over the years, some of them have said, my children are in failing schools. 
Why can't we support school choice? They have been supportive, and then they've been taken out in the Democratic primaries by Democratic voters and the teachers' unions and the establishment. They almost took out uh, Harold Dutton, a minority Democrat, African-American, who supports charter schools. And uh, I think, and I I should be careful, the president of the Texas president of one of the teacher associations ran against him and Harold Dutton barely hang on, hung on to win in the Democratic primary this year. So it's growing. Some people say, and I believe it's true, that Governor DeSantis, and again, I'm just talking about political facts. I'm not advocating which party you should support or vote for, but I will come back to your initial question. What should you do? Some people, and I believe it's true, believe that Governor Ron DeSantos, a Republican, won the Florida governor's race, which was close because minority Democrat, especially African-American women, voted for him because he was an advocate of Florida's school choice program, which is one of the most robust in the nation. They don't want to be stuck as the guinea pigs in failing schools and their children have to wait a decade till we fix it and we raise millions of dollars more when there are great charter schools that can take low-income families with just a single mom or maybe a single dad and and turn them into academic scholars. That's what KIPP and Great Hearts and other great charter schools have done. They've proven it can be done. It's another reason this education establishment hates them. High standards and high achievement expectations produce great results and, and hard work. They work harder in those schools. Now, and now, again, I'm not saying I prefer one or the other. If you've got a great school, public school that works, stay there. But you ask this question, what should a parent do? What should any citizen who wants all schools to be better? I've, I've been, I, I was, des- you didn't mention it, but I was designated a hero for children by the State Board of Education. And I tell people, I feel like a terrible hero. I haven't really fixed much. Sometimes I pointed out the problems. I was open. Anyway, what parents need to do is go to Liberty for the Kids and sign up because what you have to do to win the political battle, and this is just a a comment, an educational piece, in order to counterdict that, it would take about 100,000 to 200,000 active parents getting emails, signing up for Liberty for the Kids. And the reason you get emails when you sign up is so you can be, you can have your lobbyists or your paid people watching every piece of legislation and letting you know when you need to go to a hearing, when you need to write a senator, when you need to write a representative. That's the political process in which we live. It's a, it's a great process. The system responds to those who care the most. Right now, it's the teachers unions and education establishment. Their money is tied up. They don't want to be compelled to do a good job. They don't want parents to have a choice. Uh, Or if they do, they say, well, we'll give you a choice. We'll create a little something. And that's been good. That's one of the benefits of the choice movement is there's more public school choice. Great. But let's keep pushing them till every child, every parent has the right to take their money to the school that's best for their child. And that's all that's all we're asking for. But we want it for every child in Texas. 
Liberty for the kids. Is it, is it liberty for the kids.org? Is that the full website? Yes. Liberty, liberty for, for the the kids.org. Yes. We, and we will be sure to put that in the show notes so that folks can see it written down and make sure they, they go there and tell yes. us again, what's, what's your goal? What's your, what's your target that you want to get onto this website and by when? We want the child. Listen, every child in Texas has a right to a publicly funded education. That's what we did in the Constitution. That's why we tax ourselves. It's unjust to do two things, to tax a parent and then put their child in a low-performing or failing public school. And there are hundreds of thousands of children in low-performing, failing public schools. I'm happy for the good public schools, but I'm against failing public schools, wherever they are. It doesn't matter. We need to get them into a good school, public or private, wherever it works. So that's our goal. Now, uh, you know, some people have objections to these things. And when we were pushing for charters, they made all these crazy arguments that charter schools have refuted, like, oh, well, you'll cream the best students and therefore the public schools will do poorly. Well, that's been proven to be untrue for two reasons on the supply and the demand side. The best students, the ones who are in school and are happy and doing well, they don't want to leave their friends. If you're a parent, you know it and a teacher. They don't want to leave their friends. They want to stay there. The kind of student and parent who wants to leave are the ones who aren't happy and aren't doing well. Okay? So it's never creamed the best students. The second thing is the supply. If you if you're uh the kind of people, people said, well, who will, where will these charter schools come from? They don't have taxing authority. They can't pass a bond. And, 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 and who's without a superintendent, who will, who will do it? And I said, the answer is educational heroes, or in a freedom sense, you call them entrepreneurs. But they're just people who say, they see a need, and they say, hey, I can do better than that. And like if 80% of the African-American children in the Fort Worth IS at one point could not read at third grade after being in the system for three years. If the system can't teach black male children how to read after three years, somebody's going to cry out and say, this is wrong. It's not working. I've got to do better. And that's the people who created charter schools. Now, they're not all focused on black children's needs. They might create a, a STEM academy or they might create a, a language academy or an arts academy. And if your child flourishes in that kind of environment, great. But I, I said people, uh, they, the, the charter schools have created where, been created where the need are. Why? Not because they're super altruistic, but because <clears throat> they have to have the children go there because they only get money if children enroll. They can't put the child for the school 45 miles away from the children who need it and expect to get funded. Public schools can put their kids, their schools anywhere they want. <clears throat> and they can, they, can, they can do whatever the adults want and the political system responds to. But if you've got to have your, meet your consumer's need, number one is to get them into class. Now, some people say parents aren't smart enough to make uh, the decision. <clears throat> well, that's awfully arrogant. And I believe parents care. Now, I will say this. There is a difference between informed consumers and less 
informed consumers. When it comes to cell phones, I am a less informed consumer. I don't buy the first one that comes out. I wait until all the kinks are worked out of the system because I know with any new product, but some people want it new. Well, anyway, my point is liberty responds to the informed consumer. Let me give you an example of the bully problem in Texas schools. Everybody will say we got a bully problem in public schools. Now, if under school choice, one little child is afraid to go to school and she just leaves and go to another school, her life is immeasurably better. And I'm choosing bullying because safety and and basic academics are parents' chief concern. Okay, now because they want their children to succeed and they want them to be safe. And you could, if your child's crying when they go to school and say, "I'm afraid they're going to beat me up," you could complain a little bit about it. But if the situation doesn't get fixed, but if you can take your money, one child's life is immeasurably improved. Now, suppose they've got a bad bully problem. All parents usually go and say, "Hey, my child's being bullied." First, they they complain. And it ought to be taken care of right then. But most places it's not. Oh, well, we'll look into it. Yes, we'll get back to you. No, you know. Anyway, I've seen them discipline the poor child who's defending themselves because they've been bullied, because they can't tell the difference between good and evil, who's right and wrong. So we'll just punish them both. But anyway, uh, if it's truly a problem and 10 people start leaving and take their money with them, if they take ten thousand apiece, that's ten a hundred thousand dollars. Then the administrator will start saying, "Why are you leaving? My child doesn't feel safe. My child doesn't feel safe." And then that school will solve the problem it has at the public school level. Now, so that's how it works. And suddenly, the parents who didn't know there was a bully problem—maybe their kids weren't being bullied. Maybe they were big kids. They'll just look around and say, you know, things seem safer and nicer here than they used to be. And that's how freedom and consumerism responds to the most informed consumer or the one most affected. Now, let me see, tell you how we responded to the bully problem. And if you're a teacher or someone listening to this, this helps explain why fads come and go in the public school system, because it's a government control model. So enough parents start crying out, we got a bully problem. Maybe some poor child is bullied and committed suicide. That should never happen. And that child should have been able to take their money and go somewhere else so they don't commit suicide. And and parents can tell, sort of. I mean, you know, that they can tell their parents' child's unhappy. Anyway, this is terrible. This is what we're talking about. But the political control model says, okay, we have to study the issue. And what did the teachers tell us they need? Hundreds of millions of new dollars to solve the bully problem. And uh, so they create a bully program after getting hundreds of millions. So you have to have bully bully coordinators in every school district, in every school. You have to have bully reports. You have to have bully training. And in some of the schools, they may not have had a bully problem. But suddenly, this is why they're dealing with bullyism. And the teachers will tell you, we're inundated with programs to fix things, and we can't focus on the basics for our kids. So that's how we, quote, responded. And But the individual child isn't really. Now, I'm going to be controversial, 
uh, I defended school districts at the time I represent school districts that use corporal punishment. And I call corporal punishment uh, affordable, accountable uh, discipline. And I don't think any child should ever be uh, uh, beaten in anger or anything like that. But if you have a neutral principle after the teacher um, says this child's a problem, disrupted the class, called me an MFB or some other word that should never be used in the classroom at all. And this happens. We there if you in a typical middle school, there are hundreds of assaults, threats, and intimidations against children and teachers in right. the public schools in Texas. You could just do a public information request. We did it one year, six hundred in a single year in a in a middle middle school. Uh, but anyway, uh, public schools could use corporal well, corporal discipline and and record the video. So you have a video. Oh, that you know it's and. And it's cheap. Instead, what do we do? We created the alternative discipline schools and we have to give them psychological intervention. I'm not against those things for special needs students, truly. But the normal student, there was a lot less discipline problems when we used corporal punishment. And it is still legal in Texas, but it's against the majority uh, mainstream education fad. Uh, So it doesn't get used. Well, if you use, and again, under choice, if you don't want corporal punishment to your child, then don't go to a school that uses corporal punishment. But if you think it's okay and you want to be there when they administer it so you can watch it, fine, you know, but see what works. And I'll bet you the better schools would have a little corporal punishment. And then there's other ways. I'm not advocating that for every school. I reject authoritarian solutions to education problems. I believe we can be creative. We have no idea what a free education system with child-centered funding instead of district funding would do. And and again, we this is no public school cho- no school choice has ever really forced a public school to shut down, but they have changed in response to the fact that other schools can do a better job, and parents like you can take their child and their money there. Yeah, I I completely agree. So my my husband is 18 years older than I am and he's almost 66 years old and his method of parenting is more like the parents of say the 1960s than the the 2020s that we're in right now. And so he holds um very in very high regard in our family. Um and when we went to go visit our school where our kids go now to Great Hearts we were, we were blown away at how disciplined the children were in their learning. They were sitting up straight in their chairs. They were ready to learn. They were following the speaker. And all of this was trained through the, the teachers and the administration lay out this framework at the beginning of the school year. And there are consequences when the students speak out of turn or they're, they're not you know behaving according to the virtues that are laid out in beautiful paintings and poems they're all over the walls it's 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 in the dna of the way the school is run and when you as a as a parent or an outsider walk into the school you get a sense of of peace and uh, it's just a very academic environment you feel like you're in a, a high end uh, liberal arts private school in europe or something because the students are actively engaged in learning there's no to very little to no discipline problems whatsoever because it's nipped in the bud at the beginning. And so every child can 
because there's no there's no distractions in the classroom. Yes. And part of that is because every child or their parent is there because they or their parent want them to be. Right. All of right. you all have adopted that model and believe in it. That contributes greatly to the success. Other types of methods of education also get that school choice effect. And I tell parent teachers sometimes, whose unions tell them to be opposed, is uh, teachers, imagine a school where every child is there because they or their parent want them to be. It does decrease general discipline problems just because, and then public schools will say, well, somebody has to teach all the children. Well, that's why we want to create a thousand different kinds of schools. Yes, right. we don't limit the number of grocery stores or restaurants, even though food's more important, just right. because, you know, oh, my grocery store might go out of business if I just sold uh, 50-year-old bags of flour that are out of date and, and, you know, I don't know. And let me say this. There are There is a large segment of the educational establishment which thinks that kind of environment is bad because some children will learn more than others and they want equality of outcomes. Well, if everybody's going to be equal in outcome, it's going to be a low level of achievement because yes. not everybody has the same level of gifting. You and I like tests. Most, yes. maybe most yeah. normal people don't, you know, but right. I mean, they're, they're, tests are also an important part. Uh, one of the reforms I backed a lot was testing in public schools. If you have a government monopoly, you need testing because otherwise the failures will be covered up. And, yes. one of, and, and, and that's very true. On the, and so we have paper accountability in the public school system. Or we have rules, but nothing happens if you don't follow the rules. We have goals, but if 87% of the children in the uh, after 87% of black males in the third grade couldn't read, nobody lost their job. Get an 87% failure rate in the company, somebody would lose their job. But no yes. one's responsible for the children. And, right. and if and they blame it on the parents. So now what I wanted to say was school choice introduces real accountability. If your child's not doing well in that school, and maybe the school is perfectly good, but it turns out not to be a good one, you can move. You can try to find a better situation for your child. If you're the problem or you're a bad parent, you take your problems with you. It's better for the leaving school. But I don't believe, you know, most of that is not true. And, and that's why, like, and even in, a, in Liberty, you do tend to find that I, ideas that work tend to be copied. And maybe a school, public school doesn't start out with a classical learning academy. But when parents say, I'd like that, maybe the public school converts its 800-person middle school, you can have schools within a school, and public schools are doing this. You have one superintendent who supervises the schedule, but we have the, the Aristotle Academy as part of our school, and you can be part of that. Or you can be part of the uh, Building for the Future school, and you learn trades. You can make an immense amount of money in America learning a trade and a skill and being good at it, really good at it. Uh, yeah. And yet, you know, it tends to be a different kind of person who wants to work in a trade, who wants to read books. And they're both great people. And there can yeah. be great schools for both of them. Yeah, I love how you 
bring together your your love of economics and your love of reading and philosophy and it all just comes together and it's just it's done such great things for our great state of Texas. So I'm very thankful to you because you're part of the solution that helped to bring charter schools here to Texas so that my own children could could have that opportunity. We love to end our time together on the Anchored Podcast by talking about books. We love books here. Uh, We read together as a a company. We're currently reading uh, The Odyssey of Homer together. We just finished reading Macbeth last quarter. Um, We love to read together. We love to talk about ideas. Um, And we love how how books can help to, to form who we are as people. So my question for you is, what book has had a big impact on you, either as an attorney or as a father or a grandfather? And and why why has that book had a big impact on you? Well, it's the most popular book of all time. It's the number one bestseller in America every year, every year. And that book is called The Bible, which simply means, I think, the book. I think it's Latin for the book. So I like the book. And I'll tell you why that is. And when I talked about my story earlier, I was in law school and I was raised in a Catholic school. I really had an even more significant surrender of my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior after law school. And uh, law school kind of changed me and my wife. I kind of emotionally abandoned her in law school because I was going to be a lawyer and I was going to be a top lawyer. And I told her, I'll be with you a couple hours a week and on Sundays, and that's it. Other than that, I'm going to be studying. And uh, she it, she really became depressed. And I, I didn't abuse her in an abuse physical, but I emotionally abandoned her. I mean, I, I will say that. And uh, she kind of did what we say, gave her life to Christ. She said, if you want this life, you can have it. And there was a, a radical change in her life. Then later, she and her friends began praying for me. And on a marriage encounter weekend, which was a Catholic marriage encounter weekend, I realized I'd been running away from God. I knew there was a God. Most people believe there's a God. 90%, 80%, the numbers uh, are still very high who believe there's a God. And people differ difference on how to worship God or what he wants from us and all that. We have a difference of religions. But I say the... uh, Anybody who looks at evidence and discusses it logically thinks there's a first cause, and that's God. So I became a Christian, and I, I'm, I'm now a Baptist minister. I want to say that. I even, uh, But I, I'm a lawyer. I'm the head of the Justice Foundation, but I'm a licensed Baptist minister. So I say that. I read the Bible every day. I find wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I find courage in the book of the Psalms, which was David the giant killer. He's still my favorite character in the Bible. And since I brought up the issue of religion, I'd like to, if I could, just talk about how we handle religious liberty under the school choice concept. All right. Absolutely. We love that topic here at CLT. All right. There are two major clauses of our Constitution that deal with religion. And people need to understand both to decide how we built one of the greatest countries in the world based on freedom of religion and a rule against an establishment of religion. So one provision of the Constitution called the Establishment Clause says the government may not establish a religion. All right. And we are all against an established religion where you're forced to participate in religious activities or religious beliefs 
that you disagree with. That should be never happening in America. The second clause is just as important. It's called the free exercise. Congress, and it's been extended to the states, may not impose any law on the free exercise of religion. So the government doesn't establish religion, but individuals are free to be religious or non-religious as they want. Now, in the history of education, until 1962, public schools were pretty much Protestant religious in the religion they taught. It was light in the sense that, but they did have Bible singing, hymns, and prayer in the public schools. In fact, in 1908, Texas Supreme Court was asked to remove those. And the Texas Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to remove Bible reading, hymn singing, uh, and prayers because the result would be moral chaos and anarchy. We are not going to starve the moral nature of the many out of the deference to the few who object. And certainly at that time, the majority of people wanted that stuff taught in the schools. Even those prayers were voluntary at the time. And you didn't have to participate. You could be silent while everybody else was praying. But we let the majority rule. Now, in, that was 1908 in Texas. In 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court faced the same question. Shall we starve the moral and spiritual nature of the many? out of deference to the few who object to Bible reading, hymn singing, and prayers uh, in the public schools. And the Supreme Court said, well, this is a minority, but we're going we're gonna to listen to them. So eventually, those who dislike religion and want it ex completely excluded from public education got it out. So instead of having majority rule, we had minority rule. Well, school choice simply allows everybody to make their own choice. It solves it. If you want a religious school, you should go to a religious school. And today, the U.S. Supreme Court has said in Espinosa v. Montana in 2020, when the school choice program in Montana let parents take their child to a, a religious school if they wanted to. But the Montana Supreme Court said, no, that's an establishment of religion. Well, no one's being forced to do it. Everyone can go wherever they want. And the I and the I was I was in I was in the oral argument. I didn't do the oral argument, but I was there. And Justice Kavanaugh asked this very interesting question. He said, "Isn't religious discrimination as invidious, which means evil, as racial discrimination?" And he said, "Isn't this like when we segregated?" desegregated the South. It was the Supreme Court, actually, who segregated the South and the North in 19, uh, 1861 in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, where they said to African-Americans, separate but equal is equal, even the though the Constitution said you're supposed to get equal rights. So it was the Supreme Court, doesn't always get it right. And they allowed segregation for 54 years until, but Justice Kavanaugh, until Brown v. Board of Education, reversed a 58-year-old precedent of the Supreme Court called Plessy. So anyway, the court, uh, he said, when we desegregated the South, the schools, the, uh, the government shut down the swimming pools because they didn't want black children coming in. And swimming pools aren't an essential government function, but we didn't allow them to be shut down. 
So why can you, the Montana Supreme Court, shut down the school choice program so that nobody can go to a religious school? And their decision said, if you're entitled to a government benefit, which is public education, it is an entitlement program. You are already entitled to it, have been since 1876 in Texas. We're not creating a new entitlement program. It says if you get a government front of it and you're forbidden from using it in a way that is consistent with your free exercise of religion, then that is religious discrimination. It's religious bigotry. And it's time to end that. So school choice will allow not the majority to rule, not the minority to rule, but for everybody to have their own choice. And good private schools, like I said earlier, I'm not Jewish, but I put my child in the Jewish preschool. It was the best one in the community. And many people have picked picked a Catholic school or a Baptist school, not necessarily because they were that religion, but they knew it was a good school with good values. So uh, all kinds of schools were flourish. And it's time to let freedom and liberty in the culture war and the religious wars, which are heating up as to whose religion is going to be taught in the public schools. And nobody's religion should be. But if you believe there's no God, if you believe that the universe was created by a big bang, if you believe that uh, there's more than two sexes, those are all kind of religious ideas uh, that other religions have a different answer to. Let's let let's let everybody choose their own. And then we'll see which reality produces better results. That that is profound. What a delight to spend this time with you today. I, I can't wait to see you again. I am so thankful that I live in the great city of San Antonio with you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. This has been absolutely delightful uh, spending this time here together with you, Alan. Thanks again for your time. Well, thank you. And if parents want, if parents or grandparents or citizens, some grandparents are paying for their child to go to a good school. That shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be, but people have to get involved with Liberty for the Kids or some organization like that. They have to get involved in the political process if they want to see this as a reality in Texas. The courts have said it's okay. Now it's up to the will of the people through their legislature. Absolutely. Libertyforthekids.org. Thanks again, Alan. It was delightful having you here today. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.